And welcome to those of you who are joining us online. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel, and I'm excited to be continuing our series today on the book of Proverbs. Uh, Today we are talking about what the book of Proverbs has to say about wealth. Should be fun, should be totally uncontroversial. Uh, I think we're going to have a great time. I'm actually really excited about what this has to say. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get in. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the great wisdom that it has for us, not just in how we follow you, but in how we live our lives every day and in how we follow you in our lives every day. Lord, open our hearts today that we can hear from you, that we can be more like you, that we can become wise. Help us to pursue you. In your name we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned, this week's topic from the book of Proverbs is wealth, and to that effect, I think it's important to remind ourselves who this book was written to. I know that I said a few weeks ago that the context of this book is largely irrelevant, and that that is one of the interesting things about Proverbs, but I think with this particular topic, there's a bit of an exception. Proverbs refers to itself as the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, in chapter 1, verse 1. And in more than one place, the book makes clear that Solomon is writing these Proverbs for his own son, who would one day assume the throne, a leader in training. We are not wrong to interpret the Proverbs for our own context and apply them to ourselves, but it is good to remember that they were written to a literal prince. So have you ever wondered why Proverbs contains warnings against immoral women, but none against immoral men? Why it speaks of the qualities of a virtuous wife, but never talks about the qualities to look for in a virtuous husband? It's because the original intended audience wasn't looking for a husband. And on today's topic, we should also remember that the intended audience was fabulously wealthy. Now, this can be a challenge for many of us when trying to find ourselves in the scripture and apply its teaching to our own lives. Most of us would not consider ourselves wealthy. Most of our neighbors would not consider themselves wealthy. I consider it a great privilege that Elam Chapel is located downtown in the heart of our city. I love that we get to participate in the fight against food insecurity with our food bank. I love that the poor and hurting are right outside our door and that we can be open to them. And I love that this church is not composed of a single economic class. So I want to be careful how I say this next part because it has great capacity to upset. You are rich. And that's a weird thought for most of us. I don't know about you, I have to be pretty careful with my money. I'm a long way from going out to eat every night and not worrying about it. But think about this. If you have a refrigerator, a microwave, and air conditioning, you arguably live better than the great kings have historically, with the exception of the size of your house. Reasonable exception. But think about what a revolution in hygiene was brought by the invention of the toilet, or indoor plumbing in general to be able to wash your hands when you want. Think about the variety of food that we have access to at any time of year. Think about the convenience brought by having a smartphone and the ease of transport by having access to a car or even public transportation. 
It's a long way from Paul having to walk from town to town. Which is not to say that no one today has it rough, right? It's not to say that there isn't inequality or work to be done on our system. There certainly is. But it also means that in the grand scheme, we can most likely all find ourselves pretty high on the historical scale of wealth. And that means that we don't get to count ourselves out when we talk about the topic of wisdom in relation to wealth. We don't get to say, oh, that's not me. We actually need to lean in because we are exactly the kinds of people in the grand scheme that this book is talking to. <coughs> Excuse me. Another thing to point out about the topic of wealth in Proverbs is that there are multiple passages that are descriptive, not prescriptive. Right? They say the way that things are, they aren't a statement about something to strive for or even an affirmation of the goodness of the way that things are. They just are. And I want to say this because if you're taking seriously our challenge to read Proverbs, you may even have stumbled across some of those by now that made you go, that's not the sort of thing I want to read in my Bible. For example, in Proverbs 14.20, the poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. This is a statement about wealth, but that's not a good thing. Right? Or in Proverbs 22.7, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. You could argue that there's some instruction to be found in that particular one, but these aren't instructional passages, and it's important that we're discerning as we read the Bible, because there are many places, not just in Proverbs, where the Bible records what happens without necessarily condoning what happened. What we do hear so often from Christians is that the Bible is actively hostile toward wealth. And I also don't think that this is accurate. Let's look at a few passages. <coughs> Proverbs 16.8 reads, better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. But the point here isn't a statement about having wealth or not. It's a statement about how you live before God. It's better to have treasure that will last forever or righteousness than to be wealthy in this life and lose out on eternity. It's a question of focus, not a condemnation of wealth per se. Or Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2, ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value, but righteousness delivers from death. Again, this points to much the same idea. We could ask, well, what about treasures that are righteously obtained? Right? Do those have any lasting value? We'll revisit this idea a little bit later, but the important thing here is that the key is ill-gotten, not treasures. That is what's being contrasted. And then the third passage that I want to bring up, this one isn't in the book of Proverbs, but I think it's the big one on this topic. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we, were brought, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, this is an important warning that we should all take to heart. 
The pursuit of wealth can be dangerous when it becomes our primary focus. But again, this is the key. Our primary focus shouldn't be wealth. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't go anywhere on the list. Right? It doesn't mean that having it is bad. It means that depending on it is bad. So take this warning to heart. Listen, but it's not the final word on the matter. It's not the whole thing. The two topics that Proverbs is mostly concerned about regarding wealth is how wealth is made and how wealth is used. These are also helpful practical applications of our teaching today, so let's focus on those. The first one, how wealth is made, Proverbs has several things to say on this topic, and the first thing that it has to say is that wealth is made through hard work. In Proverbs 13, 11, we read that dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow, right? It's honest work. Proverbs 10, chapter 4, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Work is important and good. Remember back to our sermon a few weeks ago on work, how work was part of God's plan in the Garden of Eden, but Proverbs also carries the warning against the other extreme, that we need to also not overwork ourselves. In Proverbs 23, 4, we read, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Right? Proverbs is also reminding us, this is really not the priority. Don't wear yourself out on this. This isn't the main thing. What else does Proverbs have to say about where wealth comes from? It does say that it comes through righteous behavior. The righteous behavior brings wealth. And for some of you, this is a bit of a, you know, the, the radar has gone up here because this treads on some dangerous territory. Sometimes, this teaching referred to as the prosperity gospel that talks about this a fair bit. And I want to say, we'll talk more about the prosperity gospel, but I want to say that there is a relationship between righteousness and prosperity, but it's not usually the way that we usually get talked to about it. Because if you think about it, if you act in business, in your professional life, acting with integrity, with diligence, with honesty, goodness, this does bring prosperity. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme, right? But it does bring prosperity because people want to do business with people like that, right? If you do good business, if you make fair deals and you, you act with integrity, word of mouth is a powerful, powerful tool. Okay, what else does Proverbs say? Proverbs also says that wealth comes from divine grace, in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22, we read that the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without adding painful toil to it. Sometimes, wealth is just a blessing from God, right? It's, it's through grace. But I also want to bring up that not everyone receives the same grace. I am preaching to you today. I am doing public speaking. Who would like to trade spots? Right? I have been given grace for this. I have been given a personality that's quite happy to be up on a stage. I've been graced with some understanding of the Bible and to be able to teach, right? And I'm very grateful for that from God. Not everyone has been given that. 
And I'm not saying to toot my own horn, but because you also have gifts that I haven't been given. And we've all been given different gifts from God. And one of those gifts sometimes is wealth. Because wealth is a tool that God can use. I think, though, this is a good time to talk about the idea of the prosperity gospel and the idea of wealth as a sign of God's favor. For sure, wealth is something that we should be grateful for, but the idea that the poor are therefore out of God's favor and that the wealthy are in is an idea that has something of a checkered past and not something that we as biblically faithful Christians should be believing. The idea comes from two places. The first place that it comes from is the Old Testament. I'm not going to read it today because I'm trying to be a bit conscious of time, but go read Deuteronomy 28. It is absolutely full of this idea. Basically, Deuteronomy 28 says, if you serve God, God will bless you. It also says, if you don't, it will go very poorly. But this idea gets reflected in the prophets when they call to Israel, turn back to God or the nation will be destroyed. Do you need to go down, honey? No, you're okay? Okay. And because in the proverb, in the prophets, if you don't follow God, God will curse you. Right? This is in the Old Testament. So for the nation of Israel, wealth, therefore, was seen as an outward display of the blessing of God. And this is why in the Gospels, when we read the story of the rich young ruler, the disciples respond the way that they do. In Mark chapter 10, verse 25 to 27, Jesus has just finished speaking to the rich young ruler and he's gone away, right? And Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, who are Israelites, who are used to this idea that wealth is a sign of the blessing of God, say, who then can be saved? If these people that I've been told my entire life are gonna have a real hard time how can any of us have any hope? And Jesus looked at them and said, with, this, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So I also want to make clear that this isn't a statement about how the rich can't be saved. But this is no longer the case. Jesus changed all of that. The Old Testament also taught a works-based salvation, that our relationship with God was based on our actions and our worth. Jesus turned that upside down. And this idea of prosperity being tied to righteousness reappeared again after the Protestant Reformation, particularly in lands that were highly influenced by the teachings of John Calvin. To be clear, I am not blaming Calvin for prosperity theology. But one of the things that Calvin taught was that people who are saved have been saved since eternity past by the decree of God, through nothing of their own. This, this is basic Calvinism. As a result, it was impossible for those who are saved to fall away from the faith. But we see Christians fall away from the faith all the time. So the conclusion then was that these people who fall away were never saved to begin with. It's kind of an alarming thought. Right? This idea that if you 
Today, believe you're saved, but one day in the future, fall away from your faith. That means that today you weren't saved, according to this teaching, which I do not believe. Okay? Just so we're on the same page. But I'm setting up the background. So as a result, people were looking for ways to assure themselves of their salvation because it was possible for their faith and righteousness to be false, to be an illusion. So what idea came up again? The blessing of God on a life as a sign of God's favor. Prosperity. But this is not the witness of the New Testament. Nowhere do we read that wealth is a sign of God's favor or that wealth is God's desire for all his people. In fact, we have many attestations of Christians who were poor and in need in the New Testament. That they were sick, they were full of sickness and difficulty as the gospel went forward. All of this to say, wealth is a blessing from God, but it is not an expectation. So that's what Proverbs has to say about where, how wealth is made. The other topic that Proverbs concerns itself, and this will be how we end, as a Proverbs finally, or a pastor's finally, how wealth is used. And the first answer is wisely. Use wisdom with your money. If you're sitting here going, I don't know the first thing about how to manage my money wisely, then maybe somebody like Dave Ramsey is a program that you should be looking into. He's a Christian. He's done all kinds of work with Christians and non-Christians to help work their money. But he gives, he gives four simple points that we can draw and that, that make sense biblically, that this is how we can manage our money with wisdom. First, Make a budget and stick to it. I haven't met anyone who didn't cry the first time they made a budget. Second, live on less than you make and save. Third, invest and grow wealth, saving for retirement, figuring out ways to make your money work for you. And fourth, un avoid unnecessary debt. Right? That, those are some points of wisdom for how to manage your money well. But what else does Proverbs say? It says that wealth is used for family security. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 15, we read that the wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. Wealth is to be used rightly to protect and preserve your family. That is a good use of your money. That is a wise thing. On the, on the flip side, though, Proverbs again offers a bit of a warning on this. In chapter 11, verse 28, those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Wealth is to be used to protect, but it is not the final or ultimate or even necessarily the best protection. Our trust still needs to be in God. <coughs> Radical generosity. Proverbs talks about using our wealth for radical generosity. In fact, one of the verses that we read earlier about the poor being despised by their neighbor is immediately followed by Proverbs 14.21. It is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. Proverbs is saying that generosity towards the poor is an overturning of the way that things normally are. It is a radical generosity and a radical turning towards the life that God would have us live. 
And wealth is used to glorify God. In Proverbs 14.31, we read that whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And Jesus says something very similar in one of his parables. In Matthew 25, starting in verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. You looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Skipping down to verse 40. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Finally, wealth is to be used in order to make a difference for eternity. In Proverbs 11.4, we read that wealth is worthless on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. I'm almost done. Do you need to go down? Okay. You can't take your wealth with you. You can't take it with you. But you can use it while you have it to make a difference. Jesus tells this story about a dishonest manager who is about to be called to account by his master, and he is in deep, and he knows it. So the man does something surprising, but maybe not that surprising considering he's known as the dishonest manager. He calls in the people who owe his master, and he reduces their debt. His goal is that by doing this, he will store up some favors with these other people and basically have somewhere to land when all of this finishes shaking out. Truth be told, he is stealing from his master, more even than the original accusation. And yet, Jesus tells a surprising conclusion to the story. In Luke 16, verses 8 to 9, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Jesus' point is that wealth, resources, whatever we have in this world is all temporary. The only thing that's eternal is souls. One day, all of this will pass away. The building, the stained glass, even the air around us will all be destroyed by fire. But every person that you see, every person that you see is going to live forever, an eternity, either with God or in darkness, away from the source of all goodness, love, and light. Wealth is a tool and it is a tool that we can use to make friends and influence others towards God. For example, the food bank that we run each week is using the collected wealth of this church in order to help those who have less. But it is also done in the hope that it will bring them into the church and that they can meet God and know his love through our actions. It doesn't have to be that obvious. We also do a board game night once a month, and the church doesn't pay for any of those games. People bring their own games and use them to encourage relationships. And that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Giving a ride, sharing a meal, clothing, any act of material kindness is all done with the goal of using temporary wealth for eternal wealth, the people and souls that will last forever. I'll leave you with this last passage from Matthew chapter 6. 
verses 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. God, you've blessed us in so many ways. Lord, we pray that we would use these blessings that you've given us to be a blessing to others. We pray that our offerings would be used to advance your kingdom. We pray that you would be glorified through our lives and in everything that we can bring. We thank you for them, God. Help us to have soft hearts, to be receptive to you and ready to use what you've given us for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.